Um, I read an article this week that I thought might set us up well for our conversation today. The article was entitled, 19 Struggles Only People Who Hate People Understand. It was written by Cody Neelis. And I thought I'd read you a few, not all 19, because that might take a little bit. But as a backdrop, I have this image for you of one of my favorite people who hates people. She's coming. There she is. I don't know if you know who this is. This is uh, April Ludgate from the show Parks and Recreation. She is uh, infamous for hating people, but actually kind of really loving them. But for our purposes today, she hates, she's a person who hates people. So if you can imagine April writing this article or reading these things as I read them to you. So I'm going to cut this down from 19 to 8. Eight struggles only people who hate people understand. Number one. When you're sitting by yourself in a public space and someone sits next to you, your first instinct is, great, I hope they don't start talking to me. Number two, then they start talking to you and you're like, WTF. <laughs> Number three, they're blah blahing about their day while you suddenly silently wonder who you offended recently to warrant this kind of karmic retribution. Number four, You don't even try to hide your side eye anymore. It's basically an art form at this point, like your friends have actually complimented you on your side eye before it's, they've actually complimented you on your side eye before it's that good. That's a side eye right there, in case you're wondering what a side eye is. Number five, any small space where you get stuck with other people is basically your own personal hell. Elevators, the cream sugar corner at the cafe, waiting in line, These are all terrible, terrible places for you. Number six, and if someone tries to talk to you while you're wearing headphones, you're like, seriously, do you not see these freaking headphones on my head? And you honestly wonder, what about you seem so approachable? Number seven, no one has mastered the game of subtweeting quite like you have. Number eight, you were seriously ticked off when Grumpy Cat became a thing. That's basically who you are as a person. Now it's in to hate things. Shut the back door. Now, I want you to notice something. Here's an article that a woman writes about how to tell your person that hates other people. And she's saying, basically, I'm a person who hates other people, and here's how you can tell. But she writes this article, and who does she put it out to? Other people. So she puts the fact that she hates other people out to other people so that they can commiserate with her so she's a part of some sort of community. And that's, to me, one of the interesting things about this given this flow and how we think about relationships. You know, recently I, I, um, I talked and did interviews around the city with all kinds of different people. I set up in coffee shops, and I became that person, the stranger who talks to you at the cream and sugar station that maybe you just want to be left alone. But I was that guy because I want to have conversations with people, find out where they're coming from. And one of the things I asked about was community. And 11 people in a row said, you know, I really don't have a strong sense of connection to people in my life. Maybe my my boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, you know, maybe um, my family. But other than that, I, I, I don't. But I'd like to. And it's interesting. 
we have lots of love-hate relationships with people. We want them to be there for us, but they let us down. We have ideas of what community should be and do, so we dive into relationships, and then people don't do and be what they're supposed to do and be. And we are interchangeably optimistic and let down by people. People. How do we make sense of us? Now, one thing I know is that we want connection, but not just connection. We want deep connection. The people I talk to would say things like, I just want someone that I can lean on. So this week, we're going to look at how people, us, how we're messy. But here's the thing. What I'm going to try and convince you this week is that the mess is good for us, that it's good for you, that it's good for me. And if you know that it's coming, you can experience deep, fulfilling relationships, not in spite of it, but because of it. But we have to know what to expect and how it can help us. Does that sound interesting? I hope so, because you're here. <laughs> There's nowhere to go. All right, so to get us started, I want us to think about how we, I, at least how I think we typically think about relationships. There's a little short little diagram here. I think a typical approach is that we're a little naive about relationships. We expect them to do and be things for us that perhaps they can't do and be for us. And so when we get into relationships or into a community and we have certain expectations and they're not met, we end up disappointed or we end up hurt. And that turns into cynicism. Yeah? And once we're cynical, then we're kind of stuck starting at cynicism every time we get involved in another group or any time we meet someone new and start to develop a relationship. We talked about dating last week, and one of the emphasis was the way that online dating works, and I sensed from a lot of people I talked to a cynicism about online dating. Yeah? I think it goes beyond dating relationships into relationships with our spouses or partners, into relationships at work, into relationships in a church community. And the result of naivete leading leading to cynicism is that we isolate ourselves. Here's another approach I like to suggest. I'm calling it a scriptural approach because I think it's what we see in the passage today. I think it's what you'll see as we read it. And that's this. It starts in a different place. It starts in a hopeful place. Now, how is hopeful different from naive? Because you could say someone that's hopeful is naive too, like especially if you're cynical, right? I think the difference is that hopeful people are aware, heading into something, that it's not going to be all rainbows and unicorns. They're aware that there are going to be difficulties. They're expecting something to be tough or hard or difficult, all right? That's a hopeful person, yet... They think there's a benefit to them, so they enter into it. As opposed to a naive person who thinks, oh, this is going to be awesome. This is just what I need. Um, It's going to meet all my needs, build me up, and there's not going to be any problems. Or if they are, they'll be minor, and we'll work them out um, by sharing a cup of coffee or something like that. Okay? So a hopeful start or a hopeful person leads into this whole season of what the relationship is, represented by an arrow. And when it's all said and done, wherever that relationship goes... Instead of it ending in a place of cynicism, there's an opportunity for it to land in another place, which is gratitude. 
Thank God for that relationship. I'm so glad that he is in my life. I'm so glad that they are a part of my life. Thank you, God, for this time with this group of people or this group of people that I'm a part of right now, even as it continues. So gratitude becomes a part of it. And that leads to what I'm calling redemption. Redemption of all of the little things that happen along the way that were difficult and hard. They become things that you're actually thankful for. Because, and this is what I'm arguing in our talk today, that the mess somehow is good for us. We somehow we need that. So these are the two approaches. I'm pitching the, what I'm calling the scriptural approach. I hope it's not too bold for me to say this is the scriptural approach. But this is what I think we see in our passage today. And what we're going to find is that the difference maker, what makes the difference between naive heading to cynicism leading to isolation and hopefulness leading to gratitude and culminating in redemption is what happens in these little arrows right here, the in-between or the middle. That's where the, all the stuff in relationships happens. So we're seeing the beginning and the end. What makes a difference is what happens in the middle. And what I'm suggesting is that relationships happen in the middle of the story, if we're going to go with approach number two, of redemption. So you expect going in that the story is a redemptive one, meaning to redeem something, something has to go wrong. There has to be something bad. Something not, is not going to quite work. And redemption is seeing that become a life-giving thing. In the Bible, they call it uh, experiencing the already and the not yet. The already is all the things that naive people dive into relationships for. It's the great things. It's the laughter. It's the support when tragedy hits. It's the celebration when something good happens. It's all the great things that do happen. What I would say is like, even I hope if you're involved in the community here that 90, 95% of what you experience is like the already stuff. Like we're friends. This is awesome. You know, we're, we're getting to know each other. Things are going well, right? But naive people forget about the not yet part in the middle. And they fall prey to cynicism when the middle hits And that's why they can sometimes choose isolation. Hopeful people expect the mess. They may not love it, but they expect it and see the opportunities in it. And they are prepared in a different way and experience different results. Results worth fighting for. So, what do hopeful people expect in the middle of relationships that naive people don't? Let's read our passage today. This is Ephesians chapter 4. We'll read the first six verses, and we'll cut out a little bit in the middle um, and finish up 11 to 16. Um, Paul's writing to a church in the church in the town of Ephesus, and he writes this. A prisoner for the, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. 
Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So what do hopeful people... What can we gather from what Paul says here to a young community that's just getting started? What do hopeful people expect in the middle of relationships, in that arrow between where we start and where we end up? Well, one thing I think we see is Paul is very very clearly telling them that we're guaranteed not yet. We're guaranteed some messiness. In verse 2, he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's a certain tangible realism in this passage about relationships. You read this passage, and it gets to all of the already things, all the reasons You want to be a part of community. Why it's worth sticking in there. Why the unity is worth it. So this passage focuses mainly on the benefits of community. But he starts by saying, look, ooh, bear with one another. Be patient. Be humble. Let's not pretend. This is going to get messy. Fight for unity. Have you seen that? Now, I'm hoping everyone here, after this series, will be encouraged to really invest more in the people around you. That's one of my main hopes, one of my main thrusts here. But I'm hoping, and I'm hoping you'll take more risks to be vulnerable. That's a big theme that's going to come back in this sermon, too. And I'm hoping that you'll double down when the people around you are vulnerable. And I hope that you'll all find a way to be a part of things like small groups in our church. But I, want, I don't want you to be naive. Here's what I can promise you. Let me give you four promises today. First, our relationships will never work according to our plan. Promise number two, our relationships will never live up to our expectations. Promise three, our relationships will always grapple with some kind of difficulty. Promise number four, our relationships will always need to improve. There's your four biblical promises for today. Thank you for coming. (laughs) Let me know how it goes. Uh, And honestly, I don't want to spend too much time on any one of these expectations that I'm giving to you specifically, except to say that relationships always involve at least two people. People. People are awesome but they're flawed. I'm very flawed. 
insecure, selfish. And when we get together, eventually, at some point, there will be a letdown. There'll be disappointment. There'll be conflict. People won't do what we want them to do. No relationship ever gets there. And here's a big reason why. We, we, we need to change. We need to change. The end of verse 12 says, so that the body may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. This is kind of beautiful language. Paul has a way with words. I'll give him credit. But I don't know if you noticed it. But Paul just called his readers immature and babies. His promise was that his readers could become mature and no longer be infants someday. But his point was, that's what you are right now. Meaning that those reading this passage, including us, are immature infants as we read. Now, that may sound demeaning, but I'm actually convinced that it's the perspective that we need to have and that we need to fight to keep. You see, we, we tend, I think, to think that our weaknesses are what wreaks havoc on community. Yeah? Like, if I, was, if I wasn't so weak in this area, if I was more mature here, blah, 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 um, or if that person wasn't so weak or they were more mature, right? That's the problem in community, right? That's what causes the problem. But listen to how Paul in another place describes himself. So the thing I like about Paul is sometimes it's like writing this letter. He's almost like preaching. It's almost like you guys need to become mature and less weak like me. But then if you keep reading and you read about the way that Paul describes himself, he uses a language like this. This is Paul describing a prayer time that he had with Jesus when he was praying to Jesus. And he says this, but he, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The problem in our relationships, primarily, is not our weakness. That's a given. Every relationship you have. Two people, two sets of weaknesses. The most dangerous aspect of your relationships is not your weakness, but your delusions of strength. My delusions of strength. Acknowledging our weakness actually allows room for the power of God to work in our relationships through our, our weaknesses. While thinking that we're strong or together, or mature, is what breaks down the exchange of grace. The exchange that happens in healthy relationships that are growing. 
So as I read this, as I read Paul talking to a group, encouraging them to get involved, to get connected, it sounds like the mess is actually good for us. It creates the circumstance in which we can grow. But the things that keep us out of the mess, usually our own sense of personal maturity or growth, is what also keeps us out of the place where we can actually grow. And it seems that God means other people, their gifts and their messiness, both, not just their problems, but the things they have to offer, to work on your growth areas. It says building up. There's always this language of uh, people growing, strengthening, being built up by the gifts of the people around them, but even in bearing with their weaknesses. But he writes as if we're part of the problem. And he seems to think that you and I are immature and infants too. But what I want us to see is that this is not demeaning in any way, but it's really just an indicator that he wants more for you than you've even imagined was possible for you and in your relationships. You understand that? Paul's not trying to break people down here by saying, look, you, you, you got to bear with one another because you're a bunch of messy people. What he's trying to do is cast vision. This, this whole passage is about casting vision for what can be. And the high point we'll get to later is this idea of fullness. He's saying this is what can be. But just know where you are so you can know where you're headed. C.S. Lewis, Lewis wrote and talked about this process of, he was talking about people coming into faith, uh, discovering what following Jesus was all about. And he wrote this, he said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. Right? I don't think there's anybody here that thinks they were born perfect. Usually we have a list of things where we think we probably should grow, right? And then we think we've grown there. But C.S. Lewis continues this. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? And the explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. He's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. See, our weaknesses are not the problem. They're merely the opportunities for God's grace to work in community. The trouble is when we lose touch with this. Because humility is the breeding ground for hope. And that ends in gratitude. And pride is the fertile ground for cynicism. So, where do we go from here? 
Well, the last thing I'd like to point out is it seems to me that the not yet, we've talked a lot about the not yet today, actually makes experiencing the already even sweeter. Here's what I mean. It's the mess. The mess is what creates intimacy. In verse 15, it says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is that, whom, him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows, builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is a language of connection in this passage. Uh, one body, one. Ligaments, you know, things being joined together, held together, right? Well, how does that happen? Well, for the last time, I want to show you this diagram. It's come up in every sermon I've done so far. It's about how we get to that place where we have deep relationships with people. Because my conversations with people here and in the community have been, yes, we're connected to thousands of people, more than we ever imagined we would, but our relationships to thousands of people are an inch deep, and what I'm really missing is being known or connecting to someone. We said, this is what we're missing, Uh, vulnerability, some level of vulnerability that's met with commitment and affirms who we really are. That's where intimacy happens. That's where you build deep relationships. These deep relationships that we want, here's what I want you to remember, are formed in the middle, in that place between the beginning and the end, where we start hopeful and hopefully end grateful. It's that in the middle where the depth happens. It's our messiness when it's seen by others that makes us vulnerable. And when that messiness is met by someone or some people, a community that doubles down with us, that commits to us, that sees some of our worst stuff and loves us, accepts us, holds us, doesn't push us away. Now, that doesn't mean they don't challenge us. In this passage, there's that cool phrase, speaking the truth in love, right? But as we speak the truth in love, the question of whether we're connected, whether we're together, whether we're a community is never in doubt. It's that vulnerability combining with commitment which builds up our true selves and draws us into intimate connection with other people. The messiness is what leads to deep connection. Without the messiness, people don't see the messiness. You're probably just putting up something, and people are seeing what you have created for them to see, um, which means they don't know you at all. So God uses the messiness to help us develop deep relationships. Second, fulfillment trumps disappointment. This is the key verse, the big hope, that we have this morning. Paul writes, he says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and becoming mature, listen to this, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The whole measure of the fullness. Now, I don't know if you remember last week, we talked a lot about dating, 
talk about relationships in general. We say a problem is when we think that someone else can complete us. A friend, a lover, whoever it might be. And we said that Tom Cruise was wrong. (laughs) No one can complete you. And if you think they can, you are setting yourself up for disappointment. And you're setting that person up to disappoint you. But what we see here is fulfillment actually happening in community. People attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. The full measure. And it's happening in the context of community. So what Paul, I think, is saying here is that at least in part, being connected to God through people creates the opportunity, or that's how at least part of the fullness of Christ becomes alive in you. In essence, he's saying it's okay to look for at least part of that fullness to come into your life through people, particularly through community. Just understand, Paul backs up, people are not perfect. It's going to be messy, but the reward is you can experience what it is you are made to do, who it is you are made to be as part of the body of Christ in community around you. So there's this promise that you're going to need to bear with people, but there's this promise that you can experience who you're made to be as a human being through the process. And it makes sense, the fullness of Christ. Christ's life was full of disappointments. Christ's life was full of disappointments in community. That's where we started this whole series. He was horribly let down. But in the end, and this is redemption, that community changed the world. They experienced the fullness of unity in Christ. And if that was the life of Jesus, if that was the life of his first followers, how could we expect something different? It's a redemptive story, not an easy story. It's a redemptive story, not a safe story. It's a redemptive story, not a comfortable story. And relationships with people aren't always safe or comfortable. There are moments when they don't feel safe or comfortable at all. That's the middle. And if you know that going in, you also know what's available to you if you double down. If you commit, if when you see people's messiness, you don't turn and run the other way, if when you're disappointed, you work out the conflict, that's the opportunity here. And it doesn't happen without the messiness. The intimacy doesn't happen without the messiness and the fulfillment and understanding our own weakness go together. You know, I, (laughs) man, I've been on both ends of this more times, uh, of, the, of the not yet, more than I care to remember. In the past, we've shared this story in our church because it's been so powerful of uh, some of the relational difficulties that we see in the Bible. So we see this guy, Paul, who wrote this letter. He was the first person to travel all over the Middle East, Near East, Europe, starting churches. And the first time he went, he took this guy named John Mark. Some of you might remember this story. And John Mark gets freaked out, and he bails on him. So they're out on the road. Paul's depending on him. John Mark bails on him. He goes home. 
Eventually, Paul makes it back, and it's time to go out on another trip. John Mark wants to come again. Paul says no, right? There's a not yet moment in that relationship, a mentor, a mentee, right? I've been in both situations. Uh, I've been mentored. In fact, I've had some mentors in my life. One in particular I'm thinking of, I wouldn't be here today preaching this sermon to you uh, if he hadn't invested in me. We have 20 plus years of history together. But there came a time in our relationship where I felt like Jesus was leading me in a particular direction with my life. And I knew that he wouldn't agree. And I made a mistake. Instead of talking to him about it early, I was afraid. I didn't want to let him down. And I knew I was going to, and so I waited and I waited. And basically I talked to him after I had already figured out what I was going to do. And I feel like the decision I made in my life was the right one, but not letting him in hurt him. And I remember having a conversation about that. We were chatting on the phone, and when the conversation was over, I didn't know the next time or if ever we'd ever connect again. And I made a mistake. I apologized, but the relationship got ruptured. And it's in that place today. And so I'm in the place where I'm a hopeful person, hoping that in this middle time something changes. But right now, it's not yet. I've also been on the other side. I've been a mentor to a lot of people. I had a a friend years ago. We'd worked together for years. Something went south. And to this day, I don't fully understand what it was. And I tried to reach out. And I tried to reach out. I tried to say, hey, what, what, what's going on here? What happened? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Didn't hear anything years. Finally, in the middle of this other situation, um, I get an email. The gentleman wants to meet with me. And we sit down for coffee, and he apologizes. He said, I'm sorry about this, 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 and this. And things have come back together, and less than a few weeks later, I'm at this event to send him off to the next adventure in his life and have the opportunity to pray for him and be a part of that. So I got a little bit of already there. And to be honest, some of the not yet in my life makes that already even sweeter. And I'm changing through the process. I look at relationships differently. When people disappoint me, I have a new perspective. I don't want to lose those relationships. And I'm growing through that. And what I'm talking about here is like the 5% of not yet. Most of my relationships... It's like 90, 95% of the already. The laughter, the getting to know each other, the enjoying each other, the working on projects, the victories, 
But that 5% is in everyone's life. Maybe it's even 10%. But when you see it come full circle, and you have those moments of redemption, that's when things get deeper. So what am I saying? Fulfillment in life, or fulfillment, I should say, happens in a life of both already and not yet. And I'm learning to live and grow through both. And I think that God is using both to teach me about the life he lived and we're all called to. A life where a community let him down in some incredible ways, but eventually changed the world. I want to change life. Every day I'm confronted with my weakness. And I'm tired of brushing it off and pretending like, oh, it's not a big deal. I want to change life, and I want that for you. Let's be hopeful. Let's dig into the mess while we enjoy the already. And there's lots of that. So let me ask you, where in your life right now are you making an intentional effort to connect to other people? Because that's where fullness happens. When was the last time you were a part of a small group? either in our church or some other small group. Maybe it wasn't called a small group. How can you make that happen in your life again? How can you be a part of that? Because there's an element of the fullness of Christ that we only get when we engage with imperfect people. So after the service today, one opportunity we have in our church, maybe the best thing we do here, is our small groups. It's how we build community. All of our small group leaders almost are here. They've got little badges on. They'll be in the lobby. They're going to lunch. You can go with them, get to know them a little bit. It's, it's, uh, it's buy your own, so they're not going to buy you lunch. That would be expensive. But, you know, wherever you go in the neighborhood, and just have a conversation, get to know people. Expect it to get messy sometimes, but also expect to find God right in the middle of the mess. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we are praying to someone who knows exactly what it's like to be encouraged by community and incredibly let down. And someone who doubled down from beginning to end. And we thank you for that example. We pray, let us experience the sweet times, super sweet. Let us take it in, let us relish it. And the moments that tempt us to become cynical, we just pray in those moments you would remind us that you told us going in that we would have to bear with one another, that we'd have to be patient, and that that is the edge of growth in our life. Remind us. And I pray for extra grace for each other, even as we challenge one another, that we could grow to know each other in a way that would be deep, fulfilling, satisfying, and that we would find you there and know you better. In Jesus' name.